0: So let's get started. Um, as both Esther and I explained last week, my third son was married last Friday evening. Um, and things didn't go exactly as planned. Uh, but the real story that I kind of want to talk about is the two weeks leading up to that. Um, because, uh, you know, even though the wedding plans had been going on for about a year uh, because of the COVID thing and a lot of unforeseen changes. whoops, And then some kind of last second things. The reception was moved basically like a week and a half, almost two weeks from its planned venue to our house, um, which was kind of a last second thing. Um, We have space and my wife's real like art form is hospitality. So uh, this generally wouldn't be a big deal. Um, uh, But when we found out the reception was, you know, coming to our place, uh, we realized we needed to get like our yard and we were doing it outside so we could kind of spread up, spread out a little bit. So we were, had to get our yard ready for a party and um, let's just say I'd been neglecting my yard for uh, like the full 28 years of my marriage. Like I'm not a, I'm not like a keep the, like a, I'm not a, what uh, do they call that road, what do they call it, road, uh, they call it? And the appeal thing where you, what's that, curb appeal. I'm not a curb appeal kind of guy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, uh, I'm terrible at keeping my yard clean. I have this tendency to roll in with tools and trailers and old furniture I pulled out of houses we're remodeling or old furniture we pull out of our house and I'll kind of drop it and go, man, I need to hook up the trailer up and drag this back to the dumpster or the burn pit. And it sits there until the next time we have an outdoor party. Um, so uh, so <laughs> we had not had an outdoor party in quite some time when we found out we were having this reception. And so um, when we found out we were hosting Nut and Katie's reception, let me just say we had a lot of work to do in a short amount of time, um, so we had tons of cleanup, tons of setup. We worked ourselves to exhaustion. We worked our kids hard enough that we were afraid Child Services was going to find out about it. We we uh, called in every favor we could, um, and uh, and we threw away scrap. We threw away garbage laying all over the yard. We planted mums. We spread mulch. We cut wood. We Pulled an old fence, hauled in tables and chairs, and set up tents and lights and prepared food and decorated and and so that we could have this amazing celebration. (coughs) Sorry, and uh, and we were genuinely happy to do it. We were excited to do it. Um, Every new piece that we set up, we'd stand back and like, oh, this is gonna be so awesome, and it was kind of fun. Except, I mean, I do have to make one like confession. I had, like, early in the process, I had, like, a little breakdown, kind of lost my mind for a minute. And Esther was like, babe, we're doing this for Nut and Katie. It's going to make him an amazing night. We would do anything to give them this night. So We're going to work hard. You're going to pull yourself together. We're going to do this. Okay, so I got calmed down, apologized for making it about me. Like, three or four days later, we just traded scripts. Esther was melting down. I was like, babe, I just used her words. Babe, this is for Nut and Katie. We're going to have an amazing night. <laughs> just kind of gave her the exact same speech, and she pulled her herself. And so other than those two, like, little meltdowns, uh, it, we were really excited to work our butts off and, and make this amazing night. Um, because, if I can like brag for a second, we can throw like a killer party. We really can. We've, my wife is amazing. Um, she can like envision uh, stuff. And I'm, I can pick up heavy things and move them so that she can make her, her dream, uh, you know, party. And it's fun to show off a little bit to wow people. Um, in fact, at the rehearsal dinner, this was like my favorite moment at the rehearsal dinner because everybody knew we had moved it to like our yard was what they had heard. And uh, so we're sitting around at this restaurant and Katie's gran- grandparents go, um, should we bring like lawn chairs or something? And I was like, oh yes, I have no clue what's coming. Like, like their, Esther had built this like pavilion, like with a dance space in the middle and tables and chairs for everybody. And amenities in every corner of the pavilion, and and, uh, so when we heard, do we need lawn chairs, I was like, they have no idea what they're about to walk into, this is awesome, like, so we were super excited that we were going to get to blow some people away um, with Esther's vision, so uh, um, a lot went into the wedding planning for a year, uh, two weeks of really intensive work for the reception, and we were ready to both see our son marry an amazing woman, and then uh, get to throw this incredible party for the two of them. And as we talked about last week, uh, the day of the wedding, Eve, my daughter, uh, had an emergency appendectomy, and the night did not go as planned. I spent the night in the emergency room, um, so that Eve, uh, so her and I both missed the entire evening. And uh, I think this experience, uh, though hardly tragic, uh, because, I mean, honestly, you know, we were incredibly blessed. Um, My son married a woman who fits into our family perfectly, and my daughter is out of the woods and healthy and Doing great, and so I'm not trying to say that missing my son's wedding was like an apocalypse in my life or anything, but um, but I do think it kind of speaks to what we're going to talk about today because it talks about we're going to talk about expectations um, and and what happens when we engage our hopes and dreams and things don't work out the way we had hoped. Um, so far, we've looked at apocalypse from several different angles. We've looked at a personal apocalypse, um, which every single one of us has experienced those moments when. A phone call or a diagnosis or a a bad meeting or a Wall Street report hits and out of nowhere our entire lives just kind of fall apart in front of us. We've all had stuff like that happen. We talked about national apocalypse, this moment when the nation of Israel was basically just conquered and taken into captivity as a whole. And how the story of God contains this weird tension between God's interaction with individuals and his interaction with Nations, especially uh, how easily we can get drawn into the personal and individualistic parts of Scripture uh, and struggle, <coughs> excuse me, and struggle with the parts of the Bible where God speaks to and deals with entire nations. And we didn't really do that much that Sunday to kind of unwind this tension, honestly, we just kind of stayed in it. But we did talk about um, where our truest allegiances lie. Uh, that the kingdom of God has to be our first and truest allegiance. Um, and then we have to attach our allegiance to the kingdom of God because it's the only kingdom that remains standing through all apocalypse, um, no matter what falls apart. I mean, and kingdoms have risen and fallen, empires have risen and fallen, and the kingdom of God is still going steady. Our true allegiance has to be the kingdom of God that's impervious to apocalypse because it was born out of judgment. It was born out of the cross. It's, it's already suffered its apocalypse. And so... Last week Esther taught us about a global apocalypse as we all kind of crawl through 2020 together. It only <coughs> makes sense to, uh, uh, just real quick, I have asthma and like the funky fog and smoke that we've been dealing with. is like really messing with it. So I'm not coughing the coronavirus all over everybody. I just, I've got this tickle in my chest. So I'm going to cough every once in a while. Isn't it weird how things have gotten where you're like afraid to cough in public? Like afraid someone's going to tackle you and spray you with Lysol? Like... <laughs> that's uh That's kind of where we're living, but um i'm like self conscious every day. <laughs> now that I'm talking about it, it's going to get worse anyway, as we crawl through twenty twenty together. It only makes sense to look back at Noah and the way he dealt with a global pandemic um, we We generally call it the flood um, Noah faced this kind of true global apocalypse, and esther helped us to realize that noah was completely human, and would have faced all manner of very human emotions and struggles as he carried humanity through the waters of judgment. And we ended last week by basically walking with Noah through the neatly uh, plowed rows of his vineyard and, uh, and, and talked about this kind of rebuilding process. Noah went back uh, to the command to be fruitful and multiply and care for the earth. Um, what he did in the midst of... Move that just a little bit. What he did in the midst of of this kind of cataclysmic event was to go back to doing what he knew he was supposed to do before. Um, Taking care of God's earth, caring for the people in front of him. Start putting things back in rows. And and in that process, if you get a little wine to help you cope, all the better. Um, Really, though, this is such a huge reminder to us um, because we get caught up in the what-if questions. What if? What if What if my guy doesn't get elected? What if uh, they don't find a vaccine? What if uh, they put us back into lockdown? What if they send our kids back home from school? Moms, hello? What are we going to do if my company doesn't open back up? These are endless questions, and what we do know is after things like this, What Noah did was he went back to doing what he knew he was supposed to do. For him, it was to love his family, care for the people in front of him, take care of the earth, tell the stories of God's faithfulness, plant things in rows again. For us, it's love God, love people. We know that's what Jesus called us to do. We know that. That's our job. No matter what happens, will things ever get back to the old normal? I have no idea. There's still going to be a God to love. There's still going to be people to love and do life with. The way we rebuild is by doing what we know we've been called to do. That's the beauty of the church. The world has, is, is wondering how they're going to get through this and what's going to happen next. In the kingdom of God, we know what to do. There's no ambiguity. We, we know we love God and we love people. We obey the only one who can truly affect change. No matter what happens, we have a, we have a plan. We know what our job is. Well, today we look at the fourth and final apocalypse, and the major difference is the level of expectation that is built up in this one, the level of expectation that's allowed to build before things fall apart. And this may be one of the most disappointing apocalypse of all. It's bad when everything falls apart out of the blue and catches us off guard, but that moment when you're 100% sure things are finally going to work out, that moment when you finally dare to believe that your dream is coming true, that moment when you take a risk and really hope that all is going to be well. And instead, things fall apart. These are the truly (coughs) heartbreaking moments in life. And honestly, our faith hinges on one of these moments. And so we're going to unpack that a little bit this morning. So, we are drawing close to Advent, and this morning's passage is typically an Advent passage. So please, um, before we get started, even though... We're about to read a passage that typically belongs in Christmas. That does not mean it's okay to start playing Christmas music and put lights up in your house. Let's do the right thing, people. Let's wait till, wait till after Thanksgiving. So I'm reading out of the uh, book of Luke, starting in verse 26. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a village in Galilee, to a virgin named Mary. She was engaged to be married to a man named Joseph. A descendant of King David, Gabriel appeared to her and said, Greetings, <coughs> favored woman, the Lord is with you. Confused and disturbed, Mary tried to think of what the angel could mean. Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have, been, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever. His kingdom will never end. Mary asked the angel, But how can this happen? I'm a virgin. The angel replied, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, so the baby will be born, the baby to be born will be holy, and he will be called the Son of God. What's more, your relative Elizabeth has become pregnant in her old age. People used to say she was barren, but she has conceived a son, and she's now in her sixth month, for the word of God will never fail, Mary responded, "I am the lord's servant. May everything you have said about me come true and then the angel left her. This is the word of the Lord. so this is the beginning of the Jesus story, and uh, there's a ton we could dig into here that 's so beautiful, but the thing that I really want to to do here is to maybe see if we can let Mary stand for all of Israel, uh, at least in terms of the distance between the scope of what is actually happening and the place where the average Israelite's mind was. Let me explain. Um, we'll start with exactly what the angel is promising here. This is really what the angel is proposing. It says, For you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you will name him Jesus. He will be very great. He will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David, and he will reign over Israel forever, his kingdom will never end now to truly understand this we actually have to back up a little bit we've spent quite a bit of time in this series and even in the series before talking about david um and he's popping up here again because this passage reflects maybe the biggest moment in david's life and that's that's saying something a man who had a lot of big moments this was probably the biggest um not long before this uh Uh, he became the king of Israel, the unified king of all of Israel. David conquered Jebus and renamed it Jerusalem. We've talked about that moment. The very next thing he did was to move the Ark of the Covenant into his new capital city. We've talked about that moment. Immediately after this, in fact, the very next chapter in 2 Samuel, David starts making plans and preparations for the temple. We've talked about this. In that same chapter, just after he begins to make these plans for the temple. The prophet Nathan, who's the one who gave David permission to start making plans for the temple, was sent to David by God to give him this message. So this is how this reads. Now go and say to my servant David, this is God speaking to Nathan, "Uh, this is what the Lord of heavens armies has declared. I took you from tending sheep in the pasture and selected you to be the leader of my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before your eyes. Now I will make your name as famous as anyone who has ever lived on the earth. And I will provide a homeland for my people of Israel, planting them in a secure place where they will never be disturbed. Every nation, uh, evil nations won't oppress them as they have done in the past. Starting from this time I appointed, or starting from the time I appointed judges to rule over the people of Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Furthermore, the Lord declares, and this is the big part, that he will make a house for you, a dynasty of kings. For when you die and are buried with your ancestors, I will raise up one of your descendants, your own offspring. I will make his, his kingdom strong. He will be the one who builds a house, a temple for my name. And I will make secure his royal throne forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. If he sins, I will correct and discipline him with a rod uh, like any father would do. But my favor will not be taken from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from your sight. Your house and your kingdom will continue before me for all time, and your throne will be secure forever. Now, it would not be an exaggeration to say that this single passage completely altered the course of Jewish thought and imagination moving forward. Uh, in fact, it's really tough to imagine like the New Testament as we know it without this passage. Um, a great many of David's psalms and a lot of the poetry from other psalmists who, who knew about this promise were committed to, to articulating what this eternal king might look like. We call them the Messianic Psalms, where they, they look at what he might go through, what his life might be like, how might he engage God, how might he rule Almost every prophet whose name is on a book in the Old Testament was writing about this passage at some point, this moment at which this eternal king would rule. This passage completely dominated Jewish imagination and discussion from this point on. In fact, Israel suffered national apocalypse under Babylon. We talked about that two weeks ago, this kind of national apocalypse. This passage is what created the real tension there. The prophets had been predicting this, uh, this collapse for, for a long time, for years, but nobody knew what to do with that in light of this promise to David that he would have an eternal king. So the, when the prophets came and they were like, hey, you're messing up. This isn't the way you're supposed to live. This isn't the way you're supposed to act. You've got to do better. They were like, yeah, but nothing can happen to us. God promised David an eternal kingdom. And so it created this tension with the prophets. So from the moment Nathan the prophet speaks these words to David, and they're recorded by the royal recorder. It takes center stage in Jewish life. In fact, there's three covenants that kind of shape the entire Jewish understanding of themselves. There's the Abrahamic covenant that God made to Abraham. There's the Mosaic covenant that came with the, the law and the Torah. And then there's the Davidic covenant. These three covenants are the, the three promises shape the Jewish understanding of what Israel is supposed to be. And one of them is right here in this passage. Pretty much everything it means to be a Jew, and really a Christian, is, is wrapped up in these three promises that God made. So it's hard to overstate how important this conversation between Nathan and David is. It's a really big deal to every Jew. So let's take this back to our conversation between Gabriel and Mary. The angel says, You found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. His name will be Jesus. He will be very great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord your God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign forever over Israel. His kingdom will never end. And Mary's reply is, how can this happen? I'm a virgin. So it's hard to catch some of the nuance in this passage, so I'm going to reframe this a a little bit. This is basically like an angel coming and saying, I have tickets to the craziest event ever. You're going to go to the Chiefs game. You're going to eat dinner with Patrick Mahomes and the whole team and anything you want to do. After the game, we're going to go to the concert filled with your favorite bands. And when that's and all you get to meet all your heroes afterwards and then after that I'm gonna fly you to a, a nice tropical island. You can take your favorite people or go alone, whichever you're into, and 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 you can do what this is the biggest thing you could ever be given. This is amazing, what do you think? And she's like, Well, I don't really have a swimsuit, so yeah. You know, like and I know what Mary's dealing with is she is is a little bigger than not having a swimsuit, but think about it. Gabriel comes down and goes, This is the Davidic covenant. This is it. This is the moment that everybody's been talking about. You're, you're having a baby. He's going to be great, just like Nathan promised. He's he's going to be called the Son of God, just like Nathan promised. He's going to sit on his, the throne of his father, David, just like Nathan promised. This is it. The day has finally come. Rejoice. And Mary goes, wait a minute, <laughs> go back to that baby thing again. Like, Kind of skips over the, the scope of what's happening here and gets hung up on, on details. Now, a couple of quick things. First, I, t- I totally understand why Mary would get caught up on that. Um, I'm not saying that's not a big deal. Obviously, that's a huge detail. Um, and I also, I'm not saying that, that Mary was somehow detached from God or the plan of God, because she absolutely wasn't. Um, I, I think Mary was amazing, so I'm not picking on Mary. But I do think this represents the way the average person in Israel would have reacted to the news that the Davidic covenant is finally here. It's finally coming to fruition. This incredibly meaningful and culturally shaping passage had become so familiar and such a part of the national narrative that everyone had grown comfortable with the idea of David's heir, but no one was actually looking for him. You know how that can happen when, when, when it's, it's such a big part of your narrative that you kind of just forget to actually live it? I read someone once who, uh, I can't even remember who it was, or I'd cite him, but who who painted this picture of the Pharisees sitting in synagogue and hearing the noise of a crowd that's listening to Jesus and coming out of the synagogue, would you guys please keep it down, you're distracting us, we're in here trying to look for the Messiah, like, you know, like while they're sitting there, like that, that's the picture I get of people who were so busy looking for the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant that they weren 't really looking for the fulfillment of the Davidic Covenant, I absolutely think this can happen, I think it's probably a little bit of what's happening to Mary here. The angel shows up an actual heavenly being with the greatest message an Israelite could ever hear and Mary gets hung up on details, understandable details, but it still reflects where the Jewish mindset was at the beginning of the Gospels. Everyone is looking for the Messiah. But no one is really looking for the Messiah, if that makes sense. Now, Jesus comes on the scene and changes all that. In fact, most of the gospel writings um, took place to turn this kind of nonchalant search for the Messiah into a full-blown kind of messianic movement. It's it's about that transition from a people who were very messianic-minded, but not really looking, to an actual messianic movement. Jesus is born and raised in relative obscurity. He shows up along with much of um, Israel to be baptized by John. He enters a time of solitude in the wilderness to be tempted and <coughs> and to have his faith proven. And then at the age of 30, he starts his public ministry as an itinerant preacher. And, and this is where most of the Gospels kind of pick up. At, at this point, um, John the Baptist is the the very first to bring any attention to Jesus whatsoever. And it's pretty small. Um, John told some of his own disciples, some of his own followers, this is the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. Kind of the very first kind of reference that anybody makes that Jesus might be bigger than just another person coming to be baptized. And some of John's disciples left John and started actually following Jesus. But for the most part, Jesus is starting fresh as a nobody. So Jesus starts to make a little bit of an impact. He goes to synagogue. Uh, we're going to kind of track through Matthew. If you want to skim the like headings in Matthew, you can follow me, but we're just going to kind of skim the book of Matthew a little bit. He goes to synagogue on the Sabbath, and since everyone's allowed to speak in synagogue, he stands up and starts teaching. And it says that people noticed that, that he taught different, that there was something special about the way he taught. He had authority. And he continues to teach, and then all of a sudden he starts to heal some people. He also kind of calls some people to follow him, and Matthew records this impact a little bit like this. He says, News about him spread as far as Syria, and people soon began bringing to him all who were sick. And whatever their sickness and disease was, or if there was a demon-possessed or epileptic or paralyzed, he healed them all. Large crowds followed him wherever he went. People from Galilee, the ten towns, Jerusalem, all over Judea, and the west of the Jordan River. So after recording one of the biggest blocks of teaching, that Matthew will record, the Sermon on the Mount, he goes back to talking about miracles and healings and some of these surprising exchanges that Jesus has. There's, a, there's no spot where Matthew can't really tell all the stories, so he goes, He healed this lady and this other guy and then just healed all the sick. That's the way Matthew says it. He just healed everyone who was sick. Cause, you know, he kind of can't tell every single story. And it feels at this point, at least when you read it from our vantage point, from from knowing the end of the story, that everyone should know exactly what's happening, right? That everybody should know this is a really big deal. This is clearly the Son of God, the Messiah, coming to save Israel. But Matthew keeps recording these little nuggets that always feel weird when they pop up in the story. Jesus and his disciples are on a boat crossing a lake. storm breaks out. The disciples panic. They wake up Jesus, who had been sleeping. We're all pretty familiar with the story. He immediately calms the storm, and they respond this way. The disciples were amazed. Who is this man, they asked. Even the winds and and waves obey him. Now most of us reading about Jesus healing multitudes and drawing crowds and doing these amazing teachings and miracles would assume that they already know who he is. Then all of a sudden he does this miracle and they're like, who is this guy? So clearly they don't know yet. Even with all this happening, they they don't really know what's happening. And this is where we have to remember that that these are Jews and and guys like this are part of their their narrative. Moses brought down an entire nation with miracles. Crazy stuff happened all through the judges and the kings. Elijah and Elisha were off the hook. Elijah called fire down from heaven to do crazy stuff. I mean, this this kind of story is not out of the ordinary for a Jew. They grew up hearing these stories. So just the... The fact that a guy shows up doing these kind of things does not automatically make him the Messiah. Miracles are part of their history. They've grown up accustomed to people healing. So the fact that Jesus can heal is cool, but you know, doctors heal. Some people just get better on their own. You know, they're they're able to play those mental games. So healers are cool, but not really that big a deal. Now, controlling nature was a big deal. There was only two prophets in the Old Testament that did anything close to that—Moses and Elijah. So when he starts talking about winds and waves and controlling storms, that's that's pretty big. Things are moving in a direction, and their response is, "Whoa, who is this guy? Because this is bigger than just a couple healings. This is—we only know two people in history who did this kind of thing, who dealt, who, who could control the weather. Well, Jesus." Continues to travel and preach and heal and mostly stir up hope in the nation. People are talking and traveling and gathering to see what's up. And before long, there are too many people to reach. So Jesus sends out his 12 disciples. Actually, one of the accounts says it was quite a few more than that. He, he commissioned them. He He's like, okay, here's what you're going to do. Actually, this is how it says. Go and announce to them the kingdom of heaven is near. Heal the sick, raise the dead. Uh, cure those with leprosy. Cast out demons. Give freely as you have received. So that's all. Just go do those things. Just go on out. Heal the sick. Raise the dead. Whatever. And the disciples go out and actually do these things. And you might think that they would just be like overflowing with faith, right? Just like look at what's happening here. But Luke kind of re- – I'm going to skip over to Luke for a second because he kind of shows their true colors. He says, when the disciples returned – they joyfully reported, Lord, even the demons obey us in your name. Like you can hear the like shock in their, in their tone there. Like they went out and obeyed, but then they're like, whoa, it actually worked. This actually happened. Holy cow. This is actually a thing. But here's the thing. This is a really big deal in the narrative because there's no one in the Old Testament. There was powerful people in the Old Testament. They did big things. They did amazing things, but nobody that could then hand their power off to others to go and do the same, no, no, like, a, like it's a kingdom or something, like, it's, like it's, it's growing. That had never happened. But then Matthew pops back in right after this story with another story casting a little bit of doubt. It says, when Jesus had finished giving these instructions to his twelve, he went out to teach and preach in towns throughout the region And John the Baptist, who was in prison, heard about all these things the Messiah was doing. He sent his disciple to ask Jesus, Are you the Messiah we've been expecting? Or should we keep looking for someone else? And this is John. This is the guy who actually has a part to play in the redemptive narrative. Like, you can't really have a Jesus without a John. You have to have someone to come and prepare the way, the Old Testament said. So this is a guy that actually has like a key part in the Gospel narrative, and he's going... Dude, are you, would you just tell me plain, are you the one or should I keep looking? Not even John knows. And, and Matthew's recording this almost like he's, he's showing some amazing things and sprinkling some doubt. And showing some amazing things and sprinkling some doubt. Like nobody really knows what's happening. I think Matthew is showing us how slow this awakening really was. Like when we read it today, Jesus is the Messiah from page 1. But Matthew and the first readers are kind of, are, they're slowly watching this thing grow and pick up steam. And John the Baptist's question shows that they were, they were starting to wake up to that real reality that this is actually the Messiah. Are you Israel's Messiah that we've been expecting for so long? Or do we just keep waiting? So maybe they're not 100% on board yet, but they're definitely like on the dock. Matthew records Jesus having exchanges with some people, some of whom believe, some of whom are a little ambivalent. It's kind of a fun block of teaching when you step back for a minute because he has all these exchanges with people. Some just like dive on board. Some like his, his, bro, his uh, brothers and sisters come and they're kind of like, ah, maybe you should come home for a while. Like they're kind of ambivalent. And then he runs into some people who are definite no's. Like they're definitely like, like confrontational. And almost in answer to the question of who am I, Jesus feeds 5,000 people. And Matthew records this this huge miracle. He walks on water. He heals more people. And then comes the real conflict. And There's a big block of teaching where Jesus is finally directed, directly confronted by the religious leaders. As we skim this book kind of from start to finish, we're watching this nation like slowly wake up and begin to wrestle with this idea of Messiah as a real and imminent possibility, not just a theoretical religious concept that people have been talking about for a thousand years, but a real thing. All of a sudden that they have this confrontation with this group of people. Jesus is now going head to head with the the group of people who were most engaged in looking for the Messiah. These are the people that if you thought you saw the messiah you would go to and say could this be him this is those people these are the messiah people this has this is the group that has studied and preached and looked for and warned of the messiah all along and now the messiah people are going head to head with this guy doing everything they can to 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 downplay him doing everything they can to catch him in a in a in a mistake doing everything they can to to bring down faith in this person. So if you're an average person and you think you might have found the guy, you've heard him preach, you've seen him do miracles, you've watched him bless people who he had had every reason to hate. In short, you think you found the Messiah. These are the people that you would go to and go, please give me confirmation that this is the guy. That's basically their job. If you're not sure, you ask them. And they're the ones now attacking Jesus. It's like Matthew is doing everything he can to give evidence for Jesus and then show you the, the problems and to build your faith and then to show you the doubt. And he goes back and forth and back and forth through the book. He's showing you why Jesus is in fact the Messiah, the Messiah but also showing you why this reality was not just that simple. Why so many people didn't follow. Why there was so much doubt and ambiguity still. Because to us, we read it, it's a no-brainer. And we just assume we would have been on board, right? Every single one of us, we never read it assuming we would have been a Pharisee. You ever done that? Like, tried to read it and assuming that you were one of the bad guys? We just don't do that. It's not the way we've been wired. We always join the protagonist. Like, and so we read it assuming we'd be right there next to Jesus screaming at the Pharisees. But Matthew's trying to show you how hard this was. This was tough. This was a tough decision. Every time there's a piece of evidence that seems to make it obvious, there's there's something else casting doubt on the very idea. And it feels like Matthew is really building up to this really important conversation that Jesus has. It's basically right in the middle of the book. It sits as kind of the pinnacle of what Matthew's been doing. It's in Matthew 16. Most scholars believe that this was the pivotal point in the book. This is what Matthew was was trying to get you, you know, kind of as a preacher when he's writing this, but this is the moment he's trying to get us to as readers. He's, he's building us up to this moment in Matthew 16. It reads like this When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, Who do people say that the Son of Man is? Well, they replied, Some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah. Others say Jeremiah or one of the other prophets. (laughs) (coughs) Then he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter, now remember that Matthew wrote this with us in this way. He knew we were going to read those. And he's confronting us with that question. But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus replied, you are blessed, Simon, son of John, because my Father in heaven has revealed this to you. You did not learn this from a human being. Now I say to you, you are Peter, which means rock. And upon this rock I will build my church, and all the powers of hell will not conquer it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you forbid on earth will be forbidden in heaven. Whatever you permit on earth will be permitted in heaven. Incidentally, Peter had been following, and this is something I, kind of, I don't really have time for, but I'm going to dig into it just a little bit anyway. Peter's been following Jesus for a couple of years at this point before Jesus really confronts him with this question. So Peter, Peter follows, and then he confesses his belief. And I only point this out because we seem to have it backwards today. Today we have this tendency, we want somebody to make a belief confession so that they can follow. And so we, we, we have this tendency to want them to buy in on day one and then become a follower. And, and Peter actually went the other way. He followed for a while, and then he came to this point of belief. And I say that because don't be afraid to to invite people into your life, invite people into our church, invite people into relationship, even if they're not hundred percent on board yet, and just let them follow and see your character for a while and see how you live your life and see how we, our church works and walk with us. We, we get so strict on, on you have to ad- adhere to this list of truth statements, you know, that, you know, right up front before you do anything else. And that's not the way Jesus functioned. He just said, Hey, follow me, follow for a while. Let that shape you. Let that change you. So I just say that to say, you know, as you, as you reach out to people, it's okay to let them follow for a while before they believe. And it creates some tension and it creates some struggle when they believe things we don't like. But that's the way Jesus discipled. He said, follow me. And then a couple years in, he said, so who do you say that I am? I think we can learn from that. Okay. Literally, in the next two verses, Jesus tells them he's about to be put to death. Like after Peter makes this confession, Jesus starts to open up the real story. I'm going to be put to death. I'm going to – the whole thing. Peter freaks out, reveals that he didn't fully get it because at this point, you know, he's like, this will never happen. You know, he kind of shows that he's not fully on board with the full messianic thing. But he believes Jesus is the Son of God. But from this point on, the conflict with the religious leaders only intensifies until Jesus is finally arrested. Now, we love this story because we know how beautiful it ends, right? But for the sake of the overall movement of the story Matthew is telling, try and put yourself in the place of the disciples at this moment. You hear this guy speak. You, finally, you find him completely compelling. You stand in awe of, as he heals people, like some Old Testament prophet or something. Then all of a sudden he's on a boat commanding nature, Suddenly he's not just a prophet, he's like a Moses Elijah level prophet. And that's a really big deal. But he doesn't really act like a prophet. He he talks to and helps non Jewish people, and he's totally accessible. And crowds of ordinary people seem to love him, which was not something any prophet could boast in the Old Testament. The prophets in the Old Testament were generally not liked. But people seem to love this guy. So you're not sure he's not only powerful, he's able to give his power to others, which seems completely unique. But the people who are most in touch with the Messianic Scriptures don't like him at all. And finally, Jesus comes to you with this question, and he asks you straight out. And you're there going, well, you're the Son of God. Like you've known it all along. Like the faith that's in your heart finally gets voice. And you're like, well, you're the Son of God, obviously. And you're probably as shocked to hear it come out of your mouth as anybody else. It just comes out like you've been there all along. And not only is the doubt gone, but now Jesus is telling you how amazing it is that you came to this decision. And He gives you a new name, and He starts talking about the place you're going to have in His new kingdom, and your head is spinning from the scope of it all. This is, this is eternal. This is the royal heir of God promised you know, to King David. So much history and hope. Hang on this guy's person and position. And he's talking about elevating you to some, some important post. And you're literally just trying to keep up at this point. Because this is some crazy heady stuff. You're excited for Israel because of all the promises of God that are wrapped up in this guy. And you're excited for the world because God has promised to bless the world through this guy. He's going to bring peace to the nations. And you're obviously excited for your own position because he's talking about elevating you in this kind of epic moment. So, so the intensity of the joy and satisfaction and and just being on this mountaintop, which you never truly dared to dream about, and while you're on cloud nine, while you're as excited as you have ever been, you watch Jesus get arrested without a fight. You watch him as he's accused and tried, never speaks a word in his defense. You see him beaten and made fun of and humiliated. As if he never had the power to command wind and rain. You watch him get sent to a secular governor who releases some known murderer rather than Jesus. And you watch Jesus get flogged and mocked and ultimately crucified as if he never had the power to feed thousands and command demons. And as you watch all of this, all you can think is you were doing just fine as a fisherman. In fact, the day that you decided to follow this guy, you had the biggest catch you'd ever had in your life. Your life wasn't nearly as kind of full and passionate back then, but honestly, you were doing fine. And then you dared to get your hopes up that things were finally changing. And now you know it was all just a waste of time. You're not the cornerstone of some new kingdom. You're not getting the keys to anything. It was all just stupid, wishful thinking. And we know the disciples struggle with this because two of them kind of set it out right. After his resurrection became common knowledge, Jesus walks up to two of the disciples kind of in disguise, and he asks them why they're so bummed out, and here's how they answer. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, You must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard all the things that have been happening here the past few days. What things? Jesus asked. The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles and was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But the leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over and condemned him to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. These things happened three days ago. We had hoped. Maybe the saddest words in Scripture. We dared to hope. And we know He did powerful miracles, no doubt. We know He was a mighty teacher. No one could dispute that. And to be honest, we were really, really hoping He was the Messiah. But they killed Him. And frankly, if the powers that be can kill somebody like that, then this is an apocalypse of cosmic proportions. And we know know that's exactly what it was. The eternal Son of God was not welcomed as the creator and sustainer of, of the universe like he should have been. Instead, he was mistreated and abused and ultimately killed. This is a cosmic apocalypse. But for the disciples, it was just a total and complete disappointment. But, praise God, we know the end of the story, right? Right? Every single one of those disciples except Judas got to see Jesus be exactly what they had hoped and dreamed he might be. They wanted Jesus to live, but they wanted him to live by defeating the Romans. Instead, he's now standing here alive. Instead of defeating the Romans, he's able to actually invite and welcome and love the Romans. Because instead of defeating the Romans, he defeated death. And there's no way to overstate the impact of the resurrection on these disciples. This small group of people with no money, no fame, no influence, no power turned the world upside down because they were so deeply and powerfully changed by the resurrection. So how do we respond to this? The resurrection changes everything. The disciples felt this deep sting of shattered hope. They were lifted to the mountaintop of excitement just to be dropped in a moment of despair. And some of us have experienced that. Missing my son's wedding and reception after weeks of prep, to be honest, was easy. I mean, it was a bummer, but it was barely a shadow of what it feels like to really get your hopes up for something and miss it. In truth, we never hesitated. Eve's health took priority. If anything, it showed us what's truly important in life, like you, you have a tendency to make these moments hugely important. And then all of a sudden you realize, man, this is all fluff, health, like the health of the people I love, you know. So mine was minor, but oftentimes it's not so minor. You have a great job interview. You think you crushed it. And you give yourself time to daydream about what life's going to be like now and how awesome it's going to be. And then you hear the company's going in another direction. Pretty much any letter that begins, we regret to inform you. I know many people have experienced the crushing disappointment of miscarriage. Esther and I have had beloved friends who have been hurt so bad that the incredibly joyful experience of getting pregnant is actually terrifying. Because you can feel that hope and that excitement nibbling at the edge of your consciousness. Even as you try desperately not to get your hopes up for a few months. Most of us know disappointment. We know pain. We know what it feels like to have your hopes crushed. But being a follower of Jesus makes things different. See, Jesus is is more than just the most compelling human to ever live. He's more than just an amazing teacher He's more than just a great example to follow. He's more than just a subversive, revolutionary, political figure who couldn't be pigeonholed into a party. He's more than the king of the kingdom of God. He's more than just a miracle-working prophet. He's absolutely and completely all of those things, but he's more than that. He is a savior who conquered death. If, there's a, if, if there was one single question as to who Jesus was, the resurrection answered it. He is the Savior. And it drove one thing home. The resurrection drove one thing entirely home, and that is this. This is not the end. The difference between the disciples before the resurrection and the disciples after the resurrection was that the disciples before the resurrection feared the end. And the disciples after the resurrection understood the maybe better than anyone could, that this is not the end. You want to know what made the the disciples willing to go through terrible things to spread the gospel? They knew that this is not the end. Whatever you do to me, this is not the end. I saw Jesus end, and then all of a sudden I realized that was not the end. That changes everything. I can't think of a better way to the re- In this series, than to drive this statement deep into our hearts. I don't care if you're going through a personal apocalypse right now, this is not the end. I don't care if you're really stressed out about the state of our nation and your entire existence seems to be hanging on what happens on November 3rd, this is not the end. I don't care if half of your mental faculties are currently consistently committed to the global impact of the coronavirus and what this global pandemic of this proportion can really do. I'm telling you, this is not the end. Whatever you're going through. I know people in our church are going through a lot right now. But this is not the end. God is not done with you. This is not the end. Our entire faith system hinges on this statement. We are resurrection people. We are hope people. We are redemption people. This is not the The end. So as we come to the table today, as I'm handing out the elements, I'm going to say to you, this is not the end. What I would like for you to do is as you take the elements, you can do it right out here at the altar at the table, or you can do it when you're back in your seat as you as you take the elements into your body, and you can mumble if you're self-conscious. But please, say these words. This is not the end. These elements that we take when we come to the table, that's what they tell us. This is not the end. There's more. Let this be a mantra to us for the rest of 2020. This is not the end. All week, dig into that. Remind yourself that you are a resurrection person. This is not the end. Let's go to the table.